So eat shit and die is, believe it or not, not a very valid argument to make, or at least it's not a very convincing one. And this is actually a thesis or a main idea, so to say, that I often mention as part of our early argumentative writing in a lot of my writing classes. So depending upon the class, the, the nature of this idea might be a little bit different, but it's essentially this thought that, you know, there's a lot of places that you can look nowadays and really ask, what is the, the nature or the quality of the argument being made? And so I thought this phrase, eat shit and die, is quite an entertaining um, manifestation of what we often see in a lot of fights on social media. There's a lot of actual videos I've seen where people actually use this as part of their arguments or devolving um, into what their arguments are really all about, which uh, comes down to just sort of fighting, I guess. And my point being with all of that is the idea that, well, obviously this isn't going to cut it in terms of actual argumentative writing, right? We're obviously going to want a lot more out of that in terms of trying to convince others, in terms of trying to present yourself in a way that does more than sort of surface level argumentation of I'm right, you're wrong. These are the facts that I don't need to necessarily substantiate with actual information or actual research. And I think this cannot be understated because to me, this is a, a huge problem nowadays. I, I say nowadays, like this hasn't always been a problem. You know, it's easy to boil a lot of the societal issues that we have down to saying, well, because of this technology or this type of generation, this is why things are the, the way that they are today. But I think if you really consider the fact that all generations essentially throughout human history have similarly been complaining about the younger generations. I mean, you can go back to some of the, the ancient Greek writers or whoever, and you'll see in their writings, they write about, well, the degradation of morals in, in youth and hard work ethics sort of eroding away over time. And so I think we really need to think about th these elements of, of societal, societal decay or lack of, you know, real in-depth thought and, and debate and um, thinking about a lot of issues as more of a cyclical process as opposed to an upward slope and then a, a hard decline over time. Because um, this is what happens in, in, in many societies that rise and fall. And, you know, I mentioned a few episodes ago how we like to think of ourselves as the epitome of human cultural achievement, human technological achievement, human societal achievement, whatever that means. And guess what? Many, many other civilizations have thought that throughout history, maybe not all of them, but certainly many of them. And so when we say that you can't use the phrase eat shit and die as part of your argument, we're really saying that sort of almost facetiously, right? Obviously, if you're writing a, an argument paper, I, I, I've yet to have a student that's as bold as to actually write that as part of their argument. But the, again, lack of sort of further research and actually thinking through some of the issues we cover can oftentimes sort of 
become what the argument is, right? The idea that, well, this is what I believe, this is what I feel, and therefore it is correct. And if you disagree, then we have nothing to say. And that very much to me sums up, you know, I, I, I don't want to get into it now because I think that's a whole other episode talking about the political polar, polarization and, and stalemating of even talking about a lot of issues in today's society. I think back to even 10 years ago, being able to speak with others across political spectrums, whether liberals, uh, centrists, or um, conservatives, and being able to have actual conversations despite maybe not agreeing on everything. I think with social media in general, we see these ideologies sort of um, heightened in terms of the extremes being proliferated and, and just being sort of more more vocal in different ways. But again, I think that's an episode for another time. The point here being is that in terms of really learning about a topic or learning about a subject, I think you do yourself as much good as you do those to whom you hope to read your work or listen to your research or listen to your arguments by taking the time to do actually do that work and actually do that research. You know, it's funny, the other day in my class... Um, Again, I, I teach several classes, and we look at research in slightly different ways. Uh, some of my classes are introduction to writing and, and rhetoric classes. Others are more um, higher-level classes in terms of specific focuses, so professional communication, uh, technical writing, those sorts of things. And in, in all of those, there's, there's value in research in, in different ways. And one of the videos that I, I showed one of my classes the other day was along the lines of the fact that even with research, that's often not enough, right? So this is now sort of the, the second step here, right? If you want to really try to convince people of an, of an argument or a point of view, you have to ask a few initial questions, right? Uh, one of the questions that students actually ask me first when we start doing research is, how many sources do I need? And this actually came up the other day too. And I said, well, you need as many sources as you need which again is a bit of a sort of sarcastic answer in some senses, but I think it's actually a good one if you really stop then to ask follow-up questions of, well, what does that mean, obviously, right? And it means that you need to ask, like, how and why should your reader believe, or audience, right, believe what you're saying? Uh, why should they be convinced by what you're saying, right? And so one of the videos that, I, I, again, I, I mentioned I showed to my class the other day was about how, you know, there's plenty of, articles that cite studies where if you actually look into the data and you break down what certain studies say, you can play around with enough statistics, not always, but oftentimes to either support the argument of that article or go totally against it in the opposite direction. And again, this is a problem because what this means is that, you know, conceivably you could have the same study posted in articles in two different places with two different viewpoints arguing the complete opposites and both are technically accurate because they're choosing what data best supports that point of view. Now, to me, the larger problem there is perhaps an audience who, if they even get that far to realizing that like, oh, people are just misusing data however they want, that data is just kind of bullshit altogether. You know, research and studies are just sort of bullshit. Uh, which obviously is not the case, right? We use research and data and all that sort of stuff for very useful purposes. And 
that's another one of the videos I, I show in my class. I actually tell them at, well, the class before I mentioned to them, ooh, next class we're going to watch some very interesting educational research videos. And I think that concerns them when I, you know, say seriously sounding boring, boring stuff like that. But the good thing is that when they get to class, we wind up watching last week tonight with John Oliver because he actually has some, a couple of really good uh, segments on research uh, and how that is presented in the media. And so he has a couple on research studies. I'll actually link them in the description below because I, I think they're actually quite enlightening. And you see how, yeah, there's <laughs> there's plenty of collections of studies too where if you just sort of read what you know, ABC News or, uh, um, you know, I'm just cherry picking here, you know, Fox News, whoever CNN says, you know, the Today Show says, you can find just as many studies or articles that talk about studies that say, okay, coffee causes cancer versus coffee cures cancer. And the problem there being that, you know, well, which is which is true. And it, it sort of depends, right? It sort of depends upon what that study is actually saying, how comprehensive is the focus, what type of, you know, cancer, what type of sample size, what, you know, what's the length of the study, there's a lot of criteria that you can look into, in terms of, you know, are the claims actually based on relevancy that we can draw those sort of broader conclusions on, right? You know, saying coffee cures cancer, or coffee causes cancer, it's like, well, no, like, if you touch coffee, it doesn't cause cancer or cure cancer, right? It's not magic. So looking into what the study actually says, of course, requires work, which requires time, which many people may not like to do. And so that's why I, I, I think there's real value still in, in education and in academics and not just in a college classroom. I mean, obviously, the college classroom is a great place where we can take time to do all of this, but you can do this in your own life. And I think as well, this is sort of the issue with why I often tell people that you know, it's very difficult to sort of actually feel as if you have all the answers to all the issues, uh, you know, ailing the world, because it takes time to actually work through all of this and to actually re review all of this data and all of these sources. So I, I think it's, it's oftentimes easier to just sort of go with the surface level. Somebody uh, I read, um, or I saw somebody speaking in an interview, and they mentioned how most I think Facebook posts it was that uh, Facebook posts that post articles on Facebook. I think it was something like the overwhelming majority of, of people who comment on Facebook article posts don't never actually click on the article. They just comment based on the headline, which to me is sort of a, a an absolute indictment on this idea that, okay, well, we need to dig a little deeper than just sort of these flashy headlines that coincide with what we have decided is the truth, right? That we have decided is the reality behind, um, you know, all sorts of all sorts of issues, right? And so one thing that I, I tell my students in terms of getting into research, particularly research related to all types of arguments about all types of issues in society, whether they're social, political, technological, I mean, cultural, you can go on and on and on down the list, right? You know, the first thing I, I, I tell them to do is to ask for both themselves and those who might have different opinions than them is this question of what information or evidence would you need to convince or change your mind? 
And this can be hypothetical, purely hypothetical. And the idea being that if you or the person that you're um, arguing with or the person who has disagreements with you maybe on certain issues can't even imagine that there could be any possible evidence that would change it. Like they can't even, even if it obviously wouldn't exist, they can't even imagine how you could make something up that, you know, would turn out to be true to convince somebody, then there's probably not a whole lot to discuss because again, there's no possible change that could happen maybe to change their mind. So I think that's worth thinking for yourself too. It's like, well, what more information or or knowledge or further evidence would maybe change my mind? And again, that doesn't invalidate one argument or the other, but I think it's a good place to stop in terms of just you know, sort of reflecting uh, for yourself in terms of like, well, why do I really believe what I believe? Like, what is the evidence actually based on that? And this is why I often tell students that, you know, the best issues to or topics to research, in my opinion, are those that you either don't know enough about that you want to learn more about, because I think that's, that's great. That's what you want to do. You want to learn the process of how to learn more about a topic or a subject. But also, I think those issues that you do have strong opinions on as long as you are trying to learn something new about them. And that very well may change what your point of view is on that topic or that subject. So for example, if you go into a uh, researching and writing about a, a topic or an issue and you think very strongly one way or the other about how that issue should be dealt with or solved or treated in some way, you have to be open to what the evidence shows you. And that's sort of one of the other big problems with research in general is cherry picking. Well, I'm going to go in with a solid argument that I am going to prove and I will cherry pick the information that agrees with that argument. And this is oftentimes, you know, the really poor papers that I see where there's no acknowledgement of other viewpoints, other solutions to issues, other um, ways of viewing issues or topics. And it just sort of seems very surface level or what we might call superficial, artificial, right? Because anybody who is reading that who disagrees with that point of view or who just comes at it from an objective standpoint, right? Like they want to learn more about it. will look at that and say, well, wait a minute. What about these other potential solutions or ways of dealing with this issue, right? Like why aren't these being addressed? Well, that makes the reader question whether or not you are biased or not, right? So this is a big problem because if you are writing something or arguing something to somebody and their perception is that, well, you're arguing a point that only people who already agree with you are going to agree with, then sort of what's the point, right? This is sort of um, comes back to this idea, (laughs) this superlative idea of eat shit and die, not being a valid argument. And I, I, you know, I say this because this reminds me very much of sort of the, I say Trumpian way of doing this, but you see this in, you know, across many political spectrums uh, with individuals, different individuals. But Trump is a prime example of this where I think he he really embodies this idea that, you know, those who agree with him are going to continue to agree with him. Those who disagree with him are going to continue to disagree with him. Right. At this point, you know, as of this episode in 2019, I'm pretty sure that those who um, don't already agree with Donald Trump are not going to be swayed to his side by anything he says, right? It's almost like 
at least for him, it's he, he's only going to lose people from here, I think. I don't know. I mean, this all depends on other political factors and, and issues in terms of what other people are up to and what other opponents he, he will he will face moving forward. But I think, again, if you watch a Trump argument, it's a perfect example of the fact that he's not bringing over new people to his side, right? He's empowering those who maybe already agree with his viewpoint. And again, there is a, a use of value in that, right? To sort of energize a base that otherwise might be apathetic or unengaged and not participating. Well, that that is a, a rhetorical goal to sort of get those people engaged. However, uh, it's not it's not my favorite, and I have quite some quite a lot of problems with it. You know, the 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 main one being this idea that well. It's not doing anything to add to the conversation, and it's certainly not doing anything to uh, speak truth about certain um, certain issues, right? Because he's, you know, again, just sort of trying to energize who, who's already um, in that camp to begin with. Um, and again, this is a problem with, you, you see this in a lot of other political spheres, but I think that's just a prime example. I mean, you can argue with me if you like, uh, but you can go on Twitter just to find out plenty of examples of just things that he says that just aren't true. Um, again, it's not like he's the only politician who lies, but he's he is a very good example of it. And you know, and I say this, I I usually avoid politics myself in all my my classes for this exact reason, right? I mean, I will mention Trump because he's such a good example, but I I you know I would I really take it seriously not to tell my students one way or the other which way to go on a political issue. I think that's, that's one of the worst things that you can do as an instructor. Um, and I'm not saying that I know people who, who do that necessarily, but I, I think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, we need our, our, our students. And, and when I say students, I mean people in general, I, I think as well, to come to conclusions on their own based on this idea of doing the level of work of actually looking into issues and actually doing research. And so one of the main ways, again, that you can do this, not just as a student, but also as just a person living your life is when you see articles, when you see news headlines, and even people commenting on them, you know, this is a big problem, you see a news headline, and then somebody on CNN or on a Fox News starts talking about it, you say, oh, this person has credentials, look, they're right below their name, these credentials. So I should trust what this person is saying. Yes, maybe it's not always that they're lying or that they're just, you know, dishonest or that they're not telling the truth, but the whole truth and, and more information about that that issue or that topic obviously might exist, right? And so I always tell my students a great place to start with their research is to look up, um, uh, you know, articles on these these topics, but then go to the studies themselves, go to the research themselves, and most articles will link these. They'll either have an explicit, you know, work cited of the sources at the bottom, or they'll just link them in the actual, um, in the actual uh, article itself and, and link them to the actual research. So that's another way to, to get there and sort of review it yourself. You know, again, I think this is a challenge because we, we do by our very nature like to fall into certain camps. And I, I think, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. To me, that's, that's just a very natural sort of evolutionary uh, process maybe on our part. But I think, again, in terms of learning a little bit more for ourselves and being more effective ourselves, we kind of want to go to the next the next level with that. 
you know, I think it's ironic as well that if you really step back and, and ask, well, why do I believe what I believe? You, you really do have to question how much more you might need to do to really get a fuller picture of certain, certain issues. And again, I think this makes it stronger uh, oftentimes your viewpoints, even if it becomes a little more nuanced, even if it becomes a little more complicated, because this makes sense, right? Life is complicated. It's very rarely, um, you know, 100% yes or no on certain issues. One of the things I tell my students, for example, because um, I, I really, <laughs> I, I really don't like sort of these broad topic issues in their papers. Like, so I'll have a student once in a while, for example, who will say, well, I want to write a paper on gun control. And my next question is, well, what do you want to write about gun control? And they, they say either one way or the other. I, I've had students who say, well, I want to write about how, you know, the government should not do gun control or should not control our right to bear arms. Or I should do, or I want to do the other side. Well, I want to write a paper where the government should control our right to bear arms. And then I say from there, in either case, okay, to what extent, to what degree? And this is where they sort of sometimes pause because I think, again, we're sort of taught and brought up and surrounded in a society where you're either for or against, right? And then the specific issues therein become, become sort of uh, subpoints to those larger, broader philosophies. And I tell students, you know, that most of the time, whichever side you, you, you are on in a debate like that, it's not as if you are either for or against. What you are is at a different place in terms of where your line is drawn. And so the example I give for students who are for gun control is I say, well, when you say that you're for gun control, should all guns be banned by everyone everywhere? So I go to the you know, farthest absolute with, with that viewpoint. And I would say nine times out of 10, they say, well, no, I mean, you should be allowed to have hunting rifle or this. I'm just saying to ban these these guns. I say, okay, so if we think about like all the types of guns and 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 access to them, you're you know here on this on this spectrum, like at you know sixty percent or something like that in terms of guns being you know types of weapons being banned. And they say, yeah, that that's where I am. And I say, okay, so you are for some guns, and that sort of confuses some students because they say, well, yeah, I am for some guns, but it becomes about the interpretation of all of this. And you know, similarly with the other side where they say, well, I don't think the government should regulate our right to bear arms. And I say, okay, so nukes and bazookas and rocket launchers and tanks, those are all, those should all be fair game for every American citizen. No background check, no, you know, no, uh, whatever. Like it's just yeehaw, go to town. Right. And they say, well, no, obviously not. I, you know, and it winds up my point being that those two viewpoints are actually much closer to each other than they think. So it's sort of the the little differences that we project as as huge differences in ideology, where really they're not as far as we think. And I think if we try to focus on those individual topics themselves and and the research behind them, we learn a lot more. And I think that's much more useful. I think it's much more interesting, honestly, too. Again, I tell students, well, saying that like you're pro-gun or anti-gun, that's not something that again, if you're saying to ban all guns, that's very hard to do in a six, seven page paper. But if you're analyzing one specific uh, legislative proposal, 
Well, you can maybe say a little bit about that in, in six pages in terms of all well, how that how would that impact, you know, gun ownership rights? How would that impact, you know, murder rates? Like what would be the specific effect of all of that? So I think that's a little more interesting, again, as opposed to saying all guns, no guns. And of course, our thesis of eat shit and die, right? We don't we don't want to go there. You know, another point that I thought was really sort of interesting, and I'm kind of disappointed that they didn't do a better job with this. I was I was actually talking about this a little bit in one of my classes the other day in terms of how bad it turned out. And I, I'm talking, of course, about Game of Thrones. And I think I, I called it to my class the, the literary... The, well, I said the, the last couple of seasons of Game of Thrones were the literary equivalent of the Titanic um, because it was big, it was huge, it was great. And then it, you know, didn't turn out so well by the end. But anyways, I think why I was so disappointed, honestly, in the end of that show, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it or you plan to see it, um, I'm, I'm not going to spoil it, but uh, there's a great line uh, from one of the last final episodes. And uh, one of the, well, I'll just say one of the leaders in the show says something along the lines of, I know what is good. And, of course, this leader started out as a good person and has become a tyrant um, just over time. Again, I think there, there's examples of history throughout this, so I think they could have done a much better uh, job leading up to that. But the point is well taken. This has happened throughout history where, you know, revolutionaries, good people, oftentimes they start out, you know, fighting for the people and doing good. And uh, it goes to their head and they say along these lines, I know what is good. And another character then asks, well, what about everybody else who knows what is good? And the other character responds something along the lines of, they don't get to choose. And to me, that sort of, again, really echoes what I see a lot online with all sorts of um, arguments and fighting and, and the lack of conversation about, well, why is it that we, that we really agree? And I think some of it is fatigue as well. You know, we get tired um, not making progress on certain issues or sort of stalemating with certain issues. So I understand that. Um, and I understand that it, it can be frustrating, especially when it seems as if, you know, progress has been stalled for so long with certain issues. But again, I come back to this idea of, well, how do you push people sort of in, in the right direction in terms of, you know, just just discussing some topics and and moving on with with some of these arguments or some of these debates, right? And so I would say in general, again, about research and doing research and more so thinking about why you think your arguments, um, you know, I think you really want to sort of pause and, and ask these questions of, well, you know, how, how have I become informed on these topics, right? You know, like sort of what is it about the evidence that, has informed me that I can really not just trust, but validate is true. That's one of the other things we do in pretty much all my classes. We do what I call a source evaluation where it's basically a worksheet and you ask all of these questions about the sources. And it's actually a great tool to use. I think looking at any source because it essentially assigns or awards points to certain criteria within a source. So for example, if you, look at a source and you ask, well, who is the author? Like, well, they have a PhD. Well, that could be a good thing, right? 
you know, PhD means that this person might be credible because they have, um, you know, at the very least, they've put in the time and work and effort to become a doctor, which is not easy, right? Um, so they are are conceivably a hardworking person, right? Whereas, you know, again, you have to ask, well, wait a minute, they're writing this article for this one field, but their doctorate is in another. So is it even applicable? Maybe, maybe not. Again, does that mean invalidate their claims? Maybe, maybe not. So you kind of go through the list of what you assess makes a source valid or not. You know, again, oh, this is a, you know, book publisher, like, well, book publishers typically aren't going to put out, you know, complete nonsense. Well, does that mean that it's valid or, or invalid? Well, it might mean that it's valid, but you have to sort of compare or contrast that with the other criteria that you're measuring in terms of why that is or is not a valid source, right? Similarly, especially now with all sorts of new media, I mean, this is happening more and more where, you know, if you look at citation guidelines now, there are explicit rules now on how to cite YouTube videos, how to cite Twitter. And it's because, you know, not just people talking, but important people talking or commenting on certain issues. They're using these platforms. And in fact, there's a lot of great sources on YouTube now, uh, great channels doing all sorts of experiments and uh, just commentary that you won't find other places. It's like, that's where you go to find that information. And sometimes I say, well, go to their studies themselves that they're using or they're citing. But sometimes they say things or they do things that are relevant and worth citing. So I say, yes, yeah, cite that. Now, again, even then, there's a difference, right? There's a difference between, you know, these former NASA engineers who are working on some weird robot thing that you want to cite as an example of how this type of technology is changing and they have a YouTube video on it versus kind of if you've ever, you know, I don't know, go to YouTube and type in lizard robot overlords running planet Earth and you'll get a plethora of results of, you know, those YouTube videos that talk like this about how the lizard people are coming for us. Again, not probably a credible source, right? So you have to assess on a case-by-case basis. But again, that takes sort of time and work and, and really just genuine thought with, with all of this, okay? And, and I think that, you know, overall is sort of the main thesis that I would say for the value of, of research and, and thinking through a lot of these issues or these topics. And again, it's not to invalidate at all what some arguments might have to say. In fact, I think it oftentimes strengthens our resolve with some of these issues. You know, again, what we, I always say to think of with writing is that you always have to keep the audience in mind in terms of, well, what more are they going to want? And you have to think about different types of readers then, right? Like what are their concerns in terms of whether or not they're going to believe what you have to say, whether or not those are good reasons, right? And that's not to say that like lower yourself or cater to you know, lower expectations, but it's, it's just a valid, practical, realistic approach to asking, well, if I really do want to convince people, what do I have to do? One of the things I actually did, geez, I think this was yesterday in class. There's, there's a lot going on this point of the semester in terms of a, a lot of these topics was we, uh, we looked at one of the things I show my students are parking ticket appeals because I like to show them real world examples of writing and, and rhetoric and persuasion uh, that you would use in real life. And so one of the things I show them are my, my many parking ticket appeals that I've written. And uh, 
I showed them I showed them an example where I got a parking ticket and it was clearly ridiculous. I mean, the my my argue so what I did was I showed them the version of my appeal because I obviously was going to appeal the ticket. Um, so I showed them the version that I wrote, and I remember specifically when I got this ticket, I said, well, I'm going to write one version saying what I really want to say, and then I'm going to write another version after pausing and really asking, okay, what do I need to do to convince my audience to give me what I really want, which is to not pay the ticket, is to get the ticket appealed. But you have to stop and ask there, what is really my goal here? Is my goal to vent and rant and show anger and ire and fury to try to get what I want? Or is it to ask, well, what are the concerns, desires, questions, uh, expectations of my audience that I can look at and say, okay, if I address all of that, will I instead get my ticket appealed? And so the first version where I'm just sort of trying to bring down the wrath of words upon them there's more than one explicative, I think. Uh, there's some cursing. And uh, it's not great, right? It's the type of appeal where if I had actually submitted it, you know, calling them explicitly morons, the parking services people, I would not get that ticket appealed, I'm pretty sure. Whereas the second one is much more courteous. It's much more clear. It's much more calculated. It's much more appropriate. And it explains things in a way that is not demeaning. It's not... Um, you know, in any way sort of uh, aggressive, uh, even passive aggressive. It's not any of those things. And of course, I got the ticket appealed, right? Because I was thinking about all these all these elements in terms of thinking about my audience more so than my own sort of reaction to what I perceive to be an injustice, right? And I think that that's a lesson certainly worth thinking about. Because of course, as I've said before, my instinct, or not my instinct, maybe my instinct, but Certainly there's a part of me, right, when I get a ticket where, you know, I look at that and I say, this is a ridiculous ticket. There's a part of me, a big part of me that wants to just write on the appeal form, I'm not paying this, sincerely, eat shit and die. So these are your two options in life. Uh, when faced with most uh, disagreements, with most uh, discourse where there are alternate opinions and alternate viewpoints, you do have these two options. And again, you can either tell somebody to eat shit and die, or you can say, well, let's really talk. You know, I recently, just before we finish, I recently told somebody that the only thing I know for sure, and I think this is true, is that there's always more for me to learn. And I don't know quite how I feel about that statement. I don't even know why I thought of it the other day. But I think it's true. And so I think it's always good to ask all of these questions. And again, centering back around this idea of, well, why do I think what I do? And to then ask yourself, is there more to learn? And I really do think that the answer is pretty much always yes. But I'd be curious to know, very curious to know, actually, if you think that there are issue, issues, there are topics where that answer is no, there is no more to learn. I think it's a good philosophical question, and there might be. I mean, again, you can 
you know, posit questions that you can say, well, it's pretty clear that this is a yes or no answer. We don't need to learn more on it. But again, there's always more to inform ourselves about in general. It's a good guideline in general, I think. So that would be my advice moving forward. Again, whether you're a student, whether you're a teacher, whether you're just somebody going about your daily life, ask these questions and see what you learn. Because I'm right there with you. I'm learning new stuff every day. So anyways, that's going to be it for today. Um, There's a lot more, like I said, that I think we can talk about with uh, specifically politics, but um, other other issues and, and ideas of vetting sources and, and discussing the value and credibility of sources. So we'll probably look at more examples of those moving forward. There's some really fun ones that I talk about in my class. So maybe that's something that we'll we'll talk about in the coming episodes here. I have some other ideas that I think will be a little bit fun and different, though, in terms of issues or topics that have come up in, in class recently that were sort of fun to start talking about or, or start discussing. So yeah, some new stuff coming down the pipeline. But in the meantime, uh, thanks for watching, listening, however you observe this podcast. Uh, We will see you hopefully next Thursday at 4 p.m. as always, unless, of course, I change the release time. We'll see how many downloads we get. I don't know. I'm not a very good metric measurer person in terms of downloads and statistics. But again, I'm trying to learn episode by episode, bit by bit. So we'll see. And uh, check us out on podbean.com or extras, uh, extra stuff at patreon.com slash professor labs. We're also on Twitter at twitter.com slash Joe T labs. And, uh, this is all on our main Podbean site. Um, I think that's podbean.com slash professor labs podcast. I should know this. Yeah. It's podbean.com slash professor labs. That makes sense. So that's all for now for today. Thanks again for joining us. And until next time, I would just say to keep on learning and, of course, keep on thinking. Thanks again. See you soon. Bye-bye.